This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. All right, it's another episode of Play by Playcast. Welcome back in, everybody. Thanks, as always, for the subscribe, the stream, the download, however you're listening to this podcast. If it's on iTunes, do take a chance to give us a rating or a review, throw some stars our way, and leave some comments if you'd like. Uh, we did get over... 50 reviews last week. We didn't get, like, over 50 reviews in a week, but, like, we eclipsed 50 reviews for the podcast last week. So if you get a couple of seconds, uh, we would much appreciate you letting us know uh, how this thing is going, uh, if you enjoy it, and what you enjoy about it. As the Open said, my name is Joel Godet. This is the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters, hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster. It's a professional development pod that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, process, stories, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. Today, Paul Peck is our guest. He's the football voice of the Buffalo Bulls, but his story is a little bit uh, more intricate and cool than just being the play-by-play voice of the Buffalo Bulls football team. Uh, the football team out of the Mid-American Conference, um, because he also had a long career in local TV news in Buffalo and now is kind of on this new venture within the last year plus in terms of... Year plus or two years? um, In terms of creating a space in new media and kind of finding a niche the way the sports media industry is going. And then, of course, uh, Paul's a Syracuse guy and came up through the WAER student radio system. But he didn't do it at just any time. Uh, He did it in 1987 in particular when he would have had a chance and he did have a chance to broadcast a Final Four, a national championship game and one of the most iconic plays in I'd say college basketball history, but certainly Final Four and National Championship game history as well. So we'll talk about that uh, with Paul coming up here in just a second. Before we do that, though, I want to touch on uh, where I'm at right now, and that is Madison, Wisconsin for the CrossFit Games. Came up here on Tuesday, I guess on Monday night, and then got underway with everything on Tuesday morning. My broadcasts officially kick off as you're listening to this uh, on Friday morning today. On the air today, tomorrow, and Saturday with the the teenage division, 16 and 17-year-olds, and then what's called the master's division. So once you hit a certain age, uh, 35, in CrossFit, you can start competing in age groups as opposed to just the open division, which would be your Rich Fronings, although he's a, a team guy now, but previously when he was really dominant. Uh, your Matt Frazers, your your daughters, Katrin Davis' daughter, uh, Davis' daughter, Katrin David's daughter, Annie Thoris' daughter, um, Sarah Sigmund's daughter, um, Tia Claire Toomey, of course, is the reigning champion. They all compete in that division. Uh, but I've got the teenagers, 16 and 17, and then the masters uh, between the ages of 35 and 49. And when it comes to this sport, there's some really big names in there as well. So I'm looking forward to uh, to getting out there and uh, watching some people throw some weight around uh, competitively. should be a lot of fun. It, if you've never been to the CrossFit Games... It's an experience. It's like 
it's like a, a weightlifting Woodstock, I guess would be the way to, to describe it. Um, we're in Madison, Wisconsin. The Alliant Energy Center is the home arena. Uh, that's what they call the Coliseum, which is like your basketball hockey uh, you know, your arena that you, you go in. And there are events in there. There was a marathon row in there on, uh, on Wednesday night. Uh, but then there's also what's called the North Park, which is an outdoor stadium. And it's kind of like, I mean, they assembled it just for this. It's kind of like a, like a pop-up soccer stadium that's outside. And then there's a pavilion where the age group competitions happen. And then there's an expo center uh, where they have the vendor fair. And then there's, uh, you know, Rogue, the company that sells athletic gear and weightlifting gear and, and weights. Um, they've got their own venue. And uh, Reebok has a massive tent that you can go to. And then there's a beer garden. And then there's an outdoor uh, kind of like watch party space like you would, you would see during the World Cup where there's an outdoor screen and you can all congregate. Uh, there's food uh, trucks and things outside. And you can kind of just stand there and watch on the big screen what's going on everywhere if you can't get across the campus. Uh, there's an outdoor obstacle course. I mean, it's just wild how big the venue is how many people are here, and the size and scope of the operation. And then from a broadcast standpoint, it's really cool. To broadcast the CrossFit Games, they broadcast, you know, what we talked about earlier, the Open Division, uh, and that's on Facebook Watch and uh, YouTube and games.crossfit.com, but also on network television CBS. Sean Woodland is the play-by-play guy for that, and hopefully we'll get him on here on the podcast in a couple of weeks. Um, but network television, CBS and CBS Sports Network uh, is airing shows about the CrossFit Games this weekend uh, and has been phenomenal in, uh, in its coverage of what's going on here. So that's that. But then there's also a team division that is broadcast. The teenager division that is broadcast and the master's division from 35 to 39, from 40 to 44, from 45 to 49, from 50 to 54, from 55 to 59 and and 60 plus, each of those divisions, those are broadcast. There is a compound at the CrossFit Games of nine, nine television trucks. It is a full out production. What's cool is they all have the Monday Night Football uh, rapping on them. Not all of them. I think three or four of them have the Monday Night Football rapping on them. I mean, like, you walk around, and I've never been to the Olympics, and I'm sure that is a much bigger production. Just obvious. I mean, that's a silly statement, but, like, obviously, from the size and scope of what's going on. But it's like a mini Olympics. Like, you're walking around this broadcast compound with producers and audio engineers and graphic coordinators and directors from the highest levels that produce everything under the sun for everyone under the sun. And it's, it's just massive. It's, it's been awesome uh, to be a part of. And I am fired up to finally get on the call uh, this weekend for some teenage and masters action. Uh, Next week, I'll let you know how it goes. So we'll kind of have the post cap for you from there. Uh, but enough CrossFit for today. Uh, let's talk to Paul Peck and about his rise in the play-by-play industry and uh, all those things we touched on earlier, including Keith Smart. But we start with uh, those Syracuse days. We start with getting into play-by-play and uh, where the early stops in his career took Paul Peck before he became a household name in Western New York and Buffalo. Paul Peck here on PXPCast. Cast. <laughs> 
Bill Roth, uh, the longtime voice of the Virginia Tech Hokies, was a sports director when I was a senior in 88. Uh, Mike Tirico was a year later. Charlie Palillo was a year later. Ian Eagle was two years later. But we were also, when I was a freshman in 83-84, it was Sean McDonough and Greg Papa, and then a year later it was Dan Horde um, and Craig Minervini. So, like, I had this incredible overlap of household names for guys like us. And, you know, I can't, I, I don't know that I ever met Greg Papa, and it was like, ah, because, like, right when I got there, there was this very famous article in Sports Illustrated, which at the time was sort of the Bible of sports, that was a feature on the Syracuse sort of broadcasting connection with Greg being the featured guy. So it was like this amazing, like he was a god to all of us. You know, I'm a freshman and like Greg Papa was in Sports Illustrated and Larry King was writing like when he wrote his column for the USA Today. It's like if I was looking for a young broadcaster, I would go to Syracuse's WAER. And like at the time, this was like, oh, my God, you know, but you were around this amazing collection of talent. And I think you, Joel, know this as well as anybody. It was all of us that drove each other to be better because you're like, I want to be as good as Dan Horde. I want to be as good as Sean McDonough. I want to be as good as Jim Jackson. I like, I, this is what I have to live up to. Uh, and then hopefully that carried through to the, to the guys after, you know, my class who was like, I want to be as good as Bill Roth. Bill Roth is unbelievable. That's what I have to be as good at. And, and that's what, I've always told people what makes Syracuse a great place for broadcasters, the classes are great, the, the, the curriculum is great, the facilities are great, but it's the people and the drive. If you're going there, you are determined to be the next blank. Like, you don't go there if you're not driven to be that. So you have this incredible collection of very driven, talented people who all want to be great. And as long as that's not like ripping each other's lungs out, which in, I never felt that way. I hope you didn't. I never felt that way. Then you all look at each other and go, we can all be good. Let's make each other better. You know, I, I, I mean this uh, with no disrespect to any other era of the radio station, but I feel like the era you just described is like the golden age, too, of WAER, because you look at like an eight-year span, and it's like what you said. And I'm sure part of it is the age that it was too so the most of those guys now are, are to the point in their careers where they are household names but it's like the golden age of all these people when you look at your McDonough's to your Eagles to your Roth's to your Hordes to your Carides etc um, and we were I was talking about this with, with Horde on the podcast um, at this point what would have been a couple episodes ago uh, about like did you know at the time that like this is who we all are and this is who we all could become and that, that's a weird question to talk about yourself in that way but like did, did you all kind of get the feeling that like this is something pretty cool we're sitting on? Oh I don't think any of us ever thought we were you know and, and, and part of what you're saying is right and I don't you know there's been so many great guys that have come after those groups that I would never tell you that we that that generation was any better than anybody else um, I think what you said has a lot to do with it we, we know those guys they've 
but let's be honest, they've reached the kind of level where they're all household names. Um, they just happen to be 40, so it's a, yeah, that's part <laughs> of it. They've paid the right that's amount of dues. I don't think anybody, I don't know what Horty would have said to you, but no, you know, our heroes were Costas and Kurt Gowdy and, you know, and the, and the greats of the Jack Buck and the greats of the game. So, you know, none of us would ever have said we're going to be them or that good. Um, but I think everybody had some confidence that they could be successful and make it a life and make it a career. Um, you know, but to see a, a, a Greg Papa, I think he was doing, I'm trying to remember, Golden State Warriors, like, like right after he had graduated, you're like, oh my God, he's calling NBA games, you know? And then Sean McDonough was probably less than five years out of college before he's doing network and Red Sox games and stuff. The World Series. Yeah, so, I mean, so those guys were anomalies a little bit, but, but that was, I always remember, and I hope it's still like this, and I think it is, where our sports office was in the old W8YAR Newhouse 2 was way back around the corner, but when you but it was the pictures on the wall. And every day you walked in to look at to look at at, at uh, Marv Albert and Dick Stockton and Bob Costas and all these other guys, and you sat and looked up as you were writing your sports cast as a freshman to look up at these pictures and you're like that's who I want to be, right? That's 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 what I want to do. That's what I want to be. So that was where the inspiration came. Uh, how good was McDonough? Like, did you? I know I just asked you this in general, but like, did you know with him? Because I feel like a guy like that, or even Tarico. Like, we've had Dave Ryan on the podcast, and 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 he would say like, you know, he'd walk by and professors would like genuflect. Yes. <laughs> we used to call <laughs> like, him the mayor. <laughs> yeah. We used to call him Todd Callis. Pinned that. Now we didn't mention Todd's name. Todd, we, uh, Todd was in my class as well too. We Todd pinned him the mayor because you we lived together and you couldn't walk from where we lived in Castle Court, anywhere on campus, without Mike knowing about 40% of the people that walked by him. So that's why he would, everybody, he was shaking hands, he was stopping, you'd have to stand there, you'd have to wait for Mike to, come on, Mike, we got to go, we got to get somewhere. Um, so Todd dubbed them the mayor. So um, Sean was great. Sean was a, 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 an interesting personality, much as he is now. Sean liked to have a lot of fun, but Sean could turn it on. And, and obviously you knew who Sean's father was and you knew his background. And um, I think we all knew that, I, I, you know, that he was really, really good. Um, I think with Mike, everybody knew right away from the minute he walked in the door, like this guy is special. And I'll never forget... Um, my dad's always been a pretty good judge of character, and my dad met Mike for the first time probably somewhere during Mike's freshman year on a parents' weekend or something, and my dad said, that guy's going to be a star. And my dad is by no means not a broadcaster. He's not an expert. He's just a pretty good read of people. And I remember vividly him telling me, that guy's going to be a star. He knew. He saw something in Mike, and we all saw it too. And what's great about Mike was... Mike may have known that, and Mike may have believed that in his own mind, but Mike never held that over your head, never elbowed you out of the way. Mike did the same grunt work and went through the same process that we all did. He just did it a lot faster. Did you have a, uh, 
Were you ever put in your place by Jim Beheim as a student? Oh. And he gets a bad rap because it's really not that bad. I think he does it mostly in fun because he can. But uh, did, you, did you have a spot where maybe you asked a question you regretted in hindsight? I, uh, I remember, I think one of these may have been mine. One of these might have been Bill Roth. But first off, Beheim knew who we all were. He knew who we, we all thought we were going to be the next Bob Costas. And he wasn't going to take any crap from any of us. So... I'll give you the story when I tell you that I learned how to ask questions from Jim Beheim because you had to learn how to ask a question to not get slammed. So there's two that I remember. One of them was Bill Roth. One of them may have been me, you know, and it was anytime you questioned a decision, you know, why, why did you, you know, why didn't you switch to a man defense in the second half when Connecticut was on a, 18 to 2 run and Jim would crinkle up and he'd go next question right or he'd go does anybody have a good question he would flat out not answer it so you had to learn how to ask that question so if you wanted to know why he didn't change defenses in the second half you better not ask why you didn't change defenses you better ask you know what was your thinking about the way Connecticut was scoring on you and your philosophy about the way you were playing defense because if, if you tried to call him out he nailed you so and then I remember like you know having to get him for the standard pregame interview before a game why do we have to do this all the time that was one that I remember I'm like oh, coach we it's pretty important to have it in the pre okay and you get your two questions and that'd be the end of it so to this day um I, I feel like I learned how to ask. You know, some guys like to get stuffed. That's kind of the world we live in a little bit now because they can. that's a badge of honor sometimes for guys. But I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be respected. And, and I wanted to get the information that I thought was worthy of getting but do it in, in a way where it would get a good answer. So I always felt like I learned how to ask questions. Well, and it teaches you, I feel like, you know, when you talked about questioning a decision, who are we to question the decision of a coach in some respects? I mean, you can always say, like, I've, I've watched enough basketball and I understand the game enough to ask that question. But it, it, it creates the ability in you as a broadcaster not to question a decision but to learn, basically to say, like, go inside your basketball mind and teach me the game and help me understand as to not why you didn't change defenses right. but why you felt you had to stay the way you were. Exactly, and that's it. And I think that's just a better way of getting better information for your listeners or your viewers. I think that's... It's, it's better. You're going to get a better answer. You may not like the answer, but you're going to get a better answer. And, and there's never I've never dealt with a coach in my 30-year career that didn't want to show you how smart they were. Fair. And, that'll, and, and some of them are probably right, and, and some of them will make you smarter because of that, too, at the end of the day. No also. question. And then the coaches want to tell you because coaches believe they did what they felt like they should do. And if you didn't agree with it, some would say that's fine. Some would say, who the hell are you to question me? But every coach wants to tell you why they did what they did to show people that they're worthy of being in that position. And Beheim was no different than that. But he just, he knew there were certain people that could ask that question in the media, maybe the people that had been there for 20 years or the professionals. Jim was not going to let one of the WAER punky young kids call him out. Um. I think I know the answer to this question, and that will lead me to my next one, but just to be sure, uh, I probably should have asked this before we hit record. Uh, who called 
the national championship basketball game. Bill Roth and I did, okay. and there's a funny story behind that. Well, but before I get in, because I, I remember, and the reason I thought of it, because I think Bill has talked in the past about um, the he he had never been more proud of you in your time as students than in that game and the way he felt that you had performed in that game. And that, I remember, I don't remember the conversation, I don't remember how we got to it, but he said, like, for me as a sports director, it was really cool to see Paul in that moment. Um, when you look back at it, what was cool about that moment other than you're in college and you're at the Final Four? Right, all right, so the backstory to this a little bit is there's a group of probably eight of us that are doing basketball games, and Bill and I are the only seniors. All right, so we kind of knew before the tournament started that if they get to the Final Four, it's us. We're the seniors. That's that's our reward for being the seniors. The trade-off is the only other game I did during that tournament run was the first-round game. So I did the first-round game. Don't even remember who it was against. Uh, and then I'm done because Tariko. Palillo, a uh, couple of, you know, Callis, those guys do the Sweet 16, the Elite Eight game. O'Brien, too. I think, did we forget him? Yeah, Dave O'Brien might have been in that <laughs> mix as well. We did forget Dave. Um, so we get to the Final Four, and it's Bill and I. And then, as per the standard WAER protocol, you flip a coin. Now, this was a bigger coin flip because this wasn't win the coin flip get to do first half or second half. This was win the coin flip, get first choice of the two games. So you can take second half of the semifinal, first half of the final, or go all in and push your chips all into the center of the table and say first half semi, second half final, of which may not ever happen. All right? So I'm like, I win the coin flip, and I think Bill is still pissed off at me and I and I don't know that he'll ever admit that but I think he's still pissed off at me so I win the coin toss and I'm like second half championship game so I call the first half of Providence Bill calls the second half we get to the championship game so Bill does the first half and then I get the second half and obviously you know everybody knows kind of what happened and and uh you know I I it's one of the great moments of my career. It's kind of weird to say 30 years later. I'd like to think I've had a few others, but it's, I call the national championship game. Three rows behind Bobby Knight on the, on the sidelines at the Superdome in New Orleans on press row. I'm a 21-year-old snotty kid in a bad-fitting blazer, and Bill and I are there. And it was amazing. It was this unbelievable experience. And then the game goes the way that it goes. And I'm proud of myself that I stayed in the moment. I uh, I, I listened back to it, and, I, and, and you always have the, the hindsight of it was one of the great championship game moments in history. Should I have been more about it, but you're calling Syracuse and Indiana hits the basket and I'll never forget and people that remember the game remember the Syracuse guys stood around for like three seconds until somebody called timeout because they were shocked by it. Um, and I remember kind of being on top of it and no one's calling timeout yet and, 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 and timeout with three seconds and and uh, it was just, it was about what we had been taught to be in control of the game. Um, it wasn't screaming, it wasn't, it was, it was the, I thought the appropriate moment for a potential buzzer beating shot and um, it was a great moment and then and years later 
I was working in Buffalo, and the, there was a the sports radio station in Buffalo was in the same building as the TV station that I worked at, and I knew the guys really well. One day they called me up about five years, maybe three, four years later, uh, and it's late April or whatever the anniversary date was, and the radio producer calls me because you got to come down here. I said, okay, I come down. He goes, you got to listen to this. And, and at the time, it was a sponsored Jack Buck This Day in Sports. This Day in Sports, April 30th, 1987. And he sets up the Syracuse game, and it's my call. They had gotten my call that we had sent it to the network. It wasn't Doug Logan's call. It wasn't the voice of Indiana's call. It was my call. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is the coolest thing ever. That was on, like, every radio station in the country. You're like... And you're, you know, I'm like 24 years old and I'm like, oh my God, like that's the most amazing thing ever. And that's what's cool about our business is things like that kind of live on in, in, in infamy or in, 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 you know, as great moments in a program's history. But if you did a good job and you made a good call, then somebody at CBS Network Sports decided it was good enough to put on. As we put this out, um, it follows an episode uh, of Mick Mixon from Carolina. Um, and we talked on that one about how he prepared for the moment of calling a Super Bowl. Um, and obviously it didn't end in quite the same illustrious fashion as, as the, the game we're talking about. But, um, and that's as a professional who's been doing this for 20 years before he's doing a Super Bowl. Uh, what are you thinking as a 21-year-old going into a Final Four in terms of handling the moment, uh, handling the unknown, and, and being ready to, to drill a, an important decisive moment and call uh, and, and just kind of how you, how you went about it and how you felt uh, you were able to handle it in hindsight. I think the, the, the things that we were trained in, that we were all focused on as young broadcasters, was getting the facts right. Getting the left, right, X, O, pass, run, who made the catch, who made the tackle, who hit the shot, right? That's kind of what we were all at the point in our careers of wanting to be good at. And I learned later on in my career, and I, and I had the pleasure of working for many, many years with Van Miller, who was the voice of the Buffalo Bills and is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, about taking the next level of capturing the moment and the emotion of it. But at the time when you're in college, you just want to get it right. You want to be factual and right. So what I remember about the call in that of the Keith Smart basket was getting the facts right. Immediately, Smart hits the basket, Indiana by one, and you're looking at the clock because how many time, much time is left? And they're not calling timeout. And okay, they finally call timeout, and there's three seconds left, and it's 74-73, and and you just you want to get that right because you're you're the people listening to you deserve that you get the facts right so that's what I remember focusing on making sure that all of that information was right um, and then that's where I think it, where, where we all try to go in our broadcasting career was to to capture the moment and to capture the emotion I always think that's the next level once you've mastered the X's and those and the lefts and the rights and the names and the numbers the next step is making people feel like they're in that stadium or arena when they're driving down an interstate somewhere you almost immediately uh, that was the end of your career in terms of uh collegiate radio because 
uh, basketball at WAER is the end. You don't do spring sports as a senior. Well, we did some lacrosse. I did think you? I did some. I think I can't even remember. Remember? Oh, maybe, okay. So when we, I but we did okay. lacrosse back then. So when I was there, juniors did lacrosse. So basketball at the end of your senior season was it. Like senior, you were done. I guess so. it makes a lot of sense, but I don't think that was our rule back then. Right, well, never mind. So you had a couple more months of being a, a collegiate radio broadcaster, but then at that point, um, you pretty much went straight to Buffalo in 1988. One correct. Stop. One year stopover out in New York working at WWR because I wanted to get into TV that was kind of where I wanted to go that was my question was yeah. kind of where did where did what what path did you want to take where did play-by-play factor into that and um, and how did you kind of wind up with with where you did I, I think I knew how hard it was to get play-by-play jobs at the time there weren't nearly as many there was so many established people in positions across the country and I had always kind of gravitated towards the TV side so my focus was trying to get a TV job and of course you're sending every resume out to every small market in the country and hoping you get a nibble here and there. And, and literal and tapes, by the way. Literal tapes, yes. Shipping three-quarter-inch tapes out and, and using a job search service that you had to call in every day for a recorded voice message of what jobs were available. Um, so in my case, I had stayed in Syracuse that whole summer and worked because the Syracuse had hosted the Empire State Games and the Junior Olympics. So I worked at, at WTVH where I had interned for four years. Worked, they hired me. I worked the summer. I produced for the guys. And then that kind of ran out. And then the semester was coming. And so I moved back to New Jersey where I'm from and uh, was on the brink of starting my career as an air conditioning contract sales person because my dad owned an air conditioning company. After like, my dad gave me two weeks of sending tapes out and making calls and like, all right, you're not sitting around the house anymore. Let's go, you're coming to work. So while I'm still looking, I'm training to literally go cold call air conditioning service contracts in central New Jersey. Uh, And then like, I was supposed to start doing that on a Monday, on a Thursday, I get a call about a production assistant job at WOR that I get the job. So I spent just shy of a year um, kind of as a sports producer at WOR working, helping them with their sports cast. At the time, they had a new newscast that had a full sports cast and then a Sunday night sports show. And that was great because that was going to the Yankee Stadium. That was going to the Garden. That was going to Giants Stadium. They gave me lots of opportunities um, to do a lot of stuff behind the scenes with uh, Marv Albert's brothers, Steve and Al were the sportscasters, and they were great guys. Uh, and then that kind of led to still trying to get an on-air TV job and just not necessarily getting the nibbles that I wanted. So a job via the phone dial-in service opens up for a sports producer job in Buffalo. I apply for it, interview for it, get the job, figure I got to get out of my parents' house. I got to get out of New Jersey. I need to get on my own. I, I wasn't on the air. I wanted to be on the air, but I'm like, all right, I'll do this for a year or two get my resume taped together, um, see what opportunities will come up. And and then what happens there is I start there in 1988. That was the beginning of the Bills run, 1990 season. They go to the Super Bowl. So I get caught up in all of that um, and and just having fun doing that, enjoying what I was doing. Um, Got a little opportunity to do some play-by-play stuff at the University of Buffalo. I kind of started there like in 91, filled in a little bit here and there, um, doing some games. So all of a sudden kind of things start happening for me in Buffalo. Then I get a chance to go on the air part-time. And then that ultimately about seven or eight years after, well, not quite that long, four or five years after I start, 
get a chance to be promoted to go full-time on the air in Buffalo. And then by then, I'm already doing UB football games, you know, uh, when, uh, you know on the weekend. So I had a lot of, I met my wife, you know, we, we got married. So, you know, that's, you know, that that's when you kind of get to that point where you're like, I got things pretty good here. Um, you know, this was a good place for me to stay. And instead of following the model that a lot of people did, which was 18 months or two years in one place, next place, next place, next place, my job kept getting better every two years. So I was able to stay in the same place. You kind of became Mr. Buffalo for a while. I, I guess it's, it's a great place, yeah. you know. I mean, I wouldn't have been there. I just had my literally last month, my 30th anniversary of taking the job in Buffalo. And, and it's a great sports town, and, and people accepted me and welcomed me, and, and you, I got a lot of opportunities and all these amazing things to go super cover Super Bowls and Stanley Cup Finals and, and NCAA tournaments. So, um, you know, and, and there's always that tipping point when you're in a market long enough where you become accepted and and people like you and then other opportunities come that do you give all that up to go to a bigger market where you have to start over again. Okay. And that's a challenge for everybody in this business. There was a point though where uh, the realities of television sports uh, came into to being though and I think you're six years now um, into some different ventures. Uh, what have you, what, what's it like in that situation where you're faced with the reality of what I've known for 25 years uh, is no longer and then uh, obviously, you still have the Buffalo stuff, and, you, and you're very successful in other things you've ventured out to afterward, uh, and being able to put together enough things to feel like, all right, I, I, I still have a living, uh, and I still have a purpose in this market. Yeah, well, I, I spoke to a uh, sports journalism class at Canisius College in Buffalo a couple of months ago, and one of those questions the professor asked me, like, well, what would you, know, what if you, what would you change if you knew then what you know now about your career? And I said, can I rephrase the question for you? It would have been nice for someone to tell me then that the career that I would get into would change completely <laughs> about halfway through it, because really that's what's happened to a lot of us. You know, I recognize that, it, it, you know... It's happened to I, me, and I'm 31. Yeah. I, went, I went from... A, a Buffalo has always been a very traditional market that, that sort of took you in and loved you when you stayed um, and the stations wanted you to stay. They didn't want you to leave. You know, people people would leave to go to bigger markets, but a lot of people would turn down bigger markets because the, the market paid well and you were comfortable and it's an easy place to live and houses are City, cheap and, you know, so... But there, but I sensed about 2010-ish or so that it was changing. That my experience was now a negative, um, and I think a lot of people have have discovered that, particularly in the local TV business, that you were embraced for your desire to stay in your longevity until it got too expensive for longevity. And when the model changed, as the as the 6 and 11 o'clock news went away from being the, the place of record for people to know what happened to their sports teams on a given day. The, the model in the business, at least in my experience, was we can do this with younger and cheaper people. And yeah, it was great you covered the Super Bowls, but nobody cares about that anymore. So I made a decision, I think, preemptively to step away after a 25-year career at one station um, and decided to get out of the business. I, I maintain my involvement in it I, through the University of Buffalo, doing football and basketball, through some other side stuff, but made the decision to get out of the business, get into something completely different, 
maybe to challenge myself a little bit to, you know, to see what I could do with it. Um, and I had a fun five years of doing that, but I think the sports pulls at you and burns at you. And if and I was trying to juggle two worlds, and that was kind of hard to do. So. About two years ago, I made the decision to try to get back in sports, but getting back into it, I knew was not going to be one job at one station. That's not the world we live in anymore. So I had to embrace sort of, okay, if I have four part-time jobs that all have me doing different things in sports and they all add up at the end of the year to where you want to be and you're busy and you're doing what you love, then then you have to kind of, it's, it's different. It, it took a while to wrap your head around it, but I don't think I'm much different than a lot of people at my age and experience in the media business, newspaper guys clearly are going through this. Um, you got to reinvent yourself. And, and I like to think that there are enough people in Buffalo who respect what I do, sports fans, and that, that, that there's a market for what I do. So now you have to create it. You can't sit back and wait for somebody to call. Hey, put me on the air. Give me, give me my own radio show. Uh, give me my own TV show. It's now I'm going to start a website. I'm going to start a radio show. Uh, I'm going to broker my own radio show to a radio station that says, oh, we can put you on the air and, and people know who you are and people will advertise on that. So um, it's it's been an interesting. It's been a challenge. There's been some highs and some lows in it. Um, but ultimately, I'm, I'm doing what I love doing in a place I love doing it. And uh, y- y- you got to make it work. You, you just you try to make it work as best you can. All right, we'll get you back to Paul Peck in just a second. But before we do that, quick shout out to Audible.com. It is the number one place to go for audiobooks online. Audible.com, or in this case, audibletrial.com backslash PXPCast. If you go to audibletrial.com slash PXPCast, you can sign up to use their service for free for 30 days. And for doing so, they will give you a free audiobook. That one is yours to keep. So you're going to get two things free, 30 days of audible.com and a free audiobook for yours to keep just for signing up for a trial at audibletrial.com slash pxpcast. Listen, sometimes we don't have time to read. Sometimes you want somebody to read to you while you're in the car or on a run or on a jog or whatever else you're doing that you need somebody to read to you for. They have all the best titles. Almost 200,000 of them, including the newest titles, Even the President is Missing. It's the book I'm currently reading by James Patterson. He co-wrote it with the former president, Bill Clinton. Uh, It's narrated by Dennis Quaid. So this isn't just like random books narrated by random people. Uh, David Spade's book is out. David Spade narrates it. I haven't checked it out, but I'm sure it's awesome. Uh, David Spade, a Polaroid guy in a Snapchat world. All of those titles available to you. AudibleTrial.com backslash PXPCast. What have you done? What's been the last two years for you well, outside Buffalo? Yeah, I mean, uh, I have a buddy of mine who, uh, who who's about 20, a little over 20 years in the media in Buffalo. Longtime uh, uh, involvement with the Buffalo Sabres hockey team on a variety of platforms, television and radio. We've been friends for a long time. He's done morning drive in Buffalo before that. And, and, and he kind of got pushed out 
by the Sabres and we've been friends for a long time. We kind of looked at each other like, how come, you know, how come with our experience, nobody really wants to hire us? But, but we knew the answer to the question. We knew it was, it's the nature of the marketplace as much as anything personal. So we kind of said, well, screw them. Let's start it ourselves. So we started a website and we did that with a core of like six or eight guys who have all been in the media before that we've worked with, that we know are legitimate guys who know what they're doing, who know how to get stories, who know how to write, and for whatever reason, circumstances push them out. Um, so we started a website called buffalosportspage.com, and, and, and I think it's trying to be what doesn't always exist in the sports media marketplace, which is a little bit of perspective. A little bit of you can go other places for every transaction and every you know little piece of roster maneuvering but if you want to know what it really means come to our site we'll tell you what what it really means and what its impact will be so that's kind of the focus that we've taken with that uh, and then we've tied that into doing our own radio show um, once a week and maybe more than that if you know working on some things there too um, you know to, to, to try to get that word out maybe a TV show you know I mean these are these are all things you you know you know you got to be everywhere these days so it's, it's the athletic buffalo basically in 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 the own independent fashion well yeah you know i mean and again it's a ch i mean it's starting a business from scratch and i'd never done that before and and you know it, things like you know insurance and 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 making sure your your website has the proper credentials to accept credit cards and all that stuff like this stuff was nuts but designing the website, making sure you have a deal to get pictures so that the website looks good. I mean, this is all stuff that had to be done, but... They can't just send membership checks, like it doesn't... <laughs> well, they certainly can, but... Um, you take cash, like... Absolutely. <laughs> um, and sponsors, you, you can't exist without sponsors. So, luckily we had the ability to call up people and say, hey, we're doing this, do you want to be a part of it? And people that knew us and knew our reputation and valued what we've done over 25 and 30 years said, yeah, I'm in. But you've got to write a legal contract. Yes, you do. Absolutely. It's not just like, all right, we'll, we'll do it for a grand. Just send us the check. Absolutely. No. So, I mean, you know, so now, you, now you're spending as much time on maintaining the website, taking care of the assignments, and making sure the sponsors are happy than you are writing stories. And that's a different challenge. But that's the world that we live in now. And we're not the only ones that have gone sort of an independent route. You know, and now it means you better be doing podcasts, which we are, and you better be on the radio if you can, and you better be hitting your social media pages up. So it's, you know, again, it's so different from the world of when I started in television, there was a 6 and 11 o'clock newscast, and that was it. And if you didn't watch the hockey game that night, you better be in front of your TV at 11 o'clock so I could tell you how the Sabres did that night. We clearly don't live in that world anymore. It was easier when we did, though, wasn't it? It was easier. I'll give you that. Um, you know, and and uh, you know, and now, now your voice is cluttered among a lot of voices. Uh, some of them professional, some of them not. Some people that prefer the non-professional, some people that prefer the professional. I like to think there's still a place for guys who have made this our career, have trained at it do it the right ways, but we also know that sometimes the, the guy who screams the loudest gets the most attention. How does it work for you to, uh, from a business standpoint, at a place like UB, where obviously you're the radio guy for football, but your presence for them is so much more than that in terms of like, do you go to them and say like, all right, well, for this, I'll do that, 
because I'm sure there's a certain extent where they're like, well, you're, you're, you're a football voice in our face, so like you'll just do this because it's, it's, it's part of the gig, right? And, and that's where I feel like the, the young gun, like if I thought of myself five or six years ago, I'd probably be like, yeah, sure, I'll just show up, I'll do whatever you want. But even now, like as I'm starting to get older, it's like, well, yeah, for a cost. Yeah. Uh, how, do you, how do you price that out kind of as an independent contractor to make sure that you are getting value for what you are? University of Buffalo's always treated me great, always treated me well. There's never been an issue with any of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, there's stuff that I do just because I like to do it, because I want to be there, because I'll do it. No big deal. I, you know, it's kind of my role a little bit. But, but when you get to the point where I'm at in my life, where I'm sort of running my own business, you do have to think about stuff like that. And I'll give you an example. Um, I've always been as generous with my time as I could be. Um, hey, can you come uh, host our golf tournament? Can you MC our golf tournament? You know, and when you're working at a local TV station, you do that for free because it helps build your brand. Right when you're in the position that I'm in now, you, you can't do those for free anymore. And some people bristle at that a little bit. Other people are like, "Yeah, okay, we get it." And I'll say to them, "Hey, I can do this for you, but I have a fee for this because this is my profession, and I guarantee you that your sponsors will get mentioned and will get people in and out, and it'll be professional and it'll be fun, and that's what you're going to pay for." And some people do it, and some people don't, and that's okay. But you do have to start thinking differently. Because in the past, yeah, sure, if I'm free and available, yeah, I'll do that, absolutely. Yeah, I can come over, yeah, no problem. Because it, it helped build your brand. Um, you have to think a little differently about that sometimes. Um, but like I said, for you know, on the university level, they're great with me and, and you know, I get compensated for almost everything I do there. Uh, coaches show, radio show, basketball, football, and, and, uh, and that's all you could ask. Let's talk about play-by-play -play a little bit. Um, and uh, that part of what you do and getting to, I don't know, is it, is it for you? Is it, is it almost a, even uh, now it's a little bit different, but when you had the TV job and it was kind of the, the I don't want to say this negatively, but like the thing you did on weekends, yeah. was it like the fun release for you to be able to, like my, my day job is the TV sports guy, but on weekends I get to call play-by-play. -play. Totally, absolutely, couldn't have said it better. Um, and that's what I love about particularly radio play-by-play, because pictures tell the story and when you when you do local tv sports you're in that two and a half to three minute window of this is what you get you know and you get to do three highlights and you better make them the three best highlights and if there's 10 highlights you better pick the three of the best 10 so it's an incredible um relief to be able to have time like that and i think as i've gone through my career i've discovered that i enjoy play-by-play -play the most for a lot of those reasons and that's why i've gravitated into doing more of it to this point in my career and let's be honest it's the one part of the sports media that hasn't changed in the 30 years that is still they haven't come up with a robot that can that can look down on a field and call a game i'm sure somebody's working yeah, on yeah. it um, but it's the, you know, in the world that we live in that has changed so much in the way people get their sports news, it's still, okay, fill the next three hours. We're not going to tell you what's going to happen, and there is no script. That's what tests all of us as play-by-play -play guys, which is I enjoy that test, um, and particularly on radio. Doing TV play-by-play -play is... The te the, you're, 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 a, you're an assister on the, on the video picture. In, in radio, it's all you. You know, it's, it's the word picture. So I like that challenge. I enjoy that. And, and you're right. It was always kind of a fun release 
for me and something I really enjoyed. Um, and, and now I, I enjoy that even more because now I can focus a little more on it and, and really put a little more effort into it because I'm not juggling it with, with a whole bunch of other things. What makes good play-by-play -play of football on the radio? Well, I think what I talked about before, you got to get the X's and O's right. You got to get the run, pass, name, number, tackle. You got to get that right. But it, it's, it's uh, how descriptive can you be? There's a run and the pass. There's about 20 ways you can describe a run. Does he dart through the hole? Does he power through the hole? Does he squirt through the hole? Uh, does he slither? That's one I came up with last year because University of Buffalo has a five foot seven inch running back and he's really shifty and he slithers through holes. So when I, when, when I use a word like that or when any great play-by-play -play guy, you know what that means. It's not just a run to the left. You know, is it off tackle? Is it behind the guard? Is it up the middle? And, um, and making sure that the word means that you're using the word the right way, too. Because I feel like, particularly, I remember back when I was in school, it would be like, well, you need more words. It's like, so you make a list. It's like words for throw. Zings, zips, whips. Yeah. And then you would just say whips. But did he really whip it or did you just say it because it was different than pass? Well, and that's where, the, that's where I feel like is almost the bigger chore. It's not just knowing the words, but using them the right you're spots. You're right. And, and the challenge in doing good play-by-play -play is figuring out the way to say that in the least amount of words. Because you can't say, you don't have eight words to say it. You got one or two to try to describe it. So does he lob the pass? Does he fire the pass? Does he zing it? Does he flip it? You know, I mean, you know, and, and you know, and then how are you describing it on the field, outside the numbers, uh, up the hash marks? I mean, all of that stuff. It's not just a run to the right for a gain of twelve. There's so much more you can do with that, and I think that's what we all push ourselves. And I do this to this day when I listen back to the games. Boy, I could have done a better job of being more descriptive. I want somebody who has a knowledge of football that can close their eyes when they're listening to the radio picture what happened based on what I described them. And, and now we live in the world where our, what the wonderful places we work for take our calls and match them up to the video highlights for the website shortly after the game where there is no hiding anymore. You know, I was taught by a lot of guys who did this back in the 60s and 70s. Well, yeah, you could fudge it a little bit. It's radio. Nobody will ever know. Not anymore. You, you know, so I think the ultimate test is to go back and watch your calls matched up with the video going, hmm, did I do that right? Did I get, did I do a good job? Did I be as descriptive on that, you know, as possible, you know, and it just, it, it just, you develop it over time. And then, and then the third level of all this is what we talked about before is capturing the moment, the emotion, you know, the, the quarterback wipes the sweat from his hands, grabs at his towel. You know, uh, you know the fans are uh, in anticipation on on the edge of their seat. Um, one of the great examples, and I don't know whether it's out there or not. Like I said, I worked with with a, a guy in Van Miller who was awesome at that. And there's a classic Van Miller clip of uh, like an early '80s Bills game when they're about to come up with a huge win, a big upset win. It might have even been to clinch a division title. And it all relied on a field goal. And there were like two or three timeouts in a row called. So he's going for like three or four, almost four minutes of trying to build up the emotion of what's going on in the stadium. And it and they keep calling time out and it was it's brilliant because he did it so well but you knew exactly what that it was like 
you know, the people are like, what's, this is the kick to decide what's going to happen. That's what a good play-by-play guy, that's what our, the, the goal for everybody should be, is can you make that person at home slide to the edge of their seat just like the people in the stands are? And then the kick was wide, right? No. Or was that kick, too, too soon? No, early, no, that was too soon. Yes, it's <laughs> always too soon. Um, the kick was good, but the call was amazing. Not so much for the call of the winning field goal, but for the three minutes leading up to it. How has the game changed from a play-by-play standpoint with the no huddle, the hurry up, and the speed of offenses, uh, and the way that you operate over the last 10, 15 years? Well, the one rule that gets thrown out is when you break in a new color guy and you're trying to sort of tell them the dynamics of it. The old rule used to be when they shut up when you when they break the huddle. That gives me enough time to set up the down, the distance, double receivers left, single setback or whatever. Well, they don't, that there's no huddles to break anymore. He just kept talking the whole game. And then, Paul, <laughs> oh, they never huddled. I just, there's no huddles to break anymore. So you have to, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's a more of a challenge for the color guys who now get like, 15 seconds to make their point instead of the 25 or 30 they used to. So, um, so that's a bit of a challenge. The game moves so fast. Um, the 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 run, the read option, I think, is a challenge for all of us as play-by-play guys because these guys have gotten so good at being deceptive that they don't just fool the defense; they fool us up in the press box. You it's know, a handoff and, to Gilbert. No, it's a keep. Yeah, and I've you know, and I've called like four or five Army games in my career, and they're unbelievably good at it. It's like and three card money. What you have to do as a play-by-play guy is put yourself on a two-second delay. And that's really hard to do because we all want to be like, you want to beat the crowd on calling it a catch before they cheer it. But when you're doing an option team, and every team is an option team to some degree now, you almost have to take a step back and wait to be sure you know who has the football before you call it. It's almost like you have to to put the right filler words in because if you say snap, option, right, you bought yourself two seconds there while you can figure out what's happening, and it's just being economical and effective yeah, kind of it, with your delay techniques. It's a, it's a trick to make sure you've figured out who has the ball. And even you get you get caught on it sometimes now because the guys are so good and, and uh, your eyes are always trained to sort of watch the action. And if it's a really good fake, there's defenders tackling a guy who doesn't have the ball while the quarterback is looping around the other side, right? It's hard. It's really, it's tough. It's a challenge. Um, Stadium locations are the other challenge, I think, for most of us as play-by-play guys now. I mean, there are NFL play-by-play booths that are literally in the end zone. Some of them, like in Washington, which is by far the single worst place ever, where you're literally behind the end zone. You know how hard it is? You know that. How is to call a game from behind? Like, Pines Field in Pittsburgh is like that. You're literally behind. You're calling the game from an end zone angle. It's impossible. So good story on that. Uh, My first year at Ball State, we were playing in the St. Petersburg Bowl, which is at Tropicana Field in, in Tampa. And you're obviously in the baseball press box, so the field is going straight away from you. And uh, I, I will never forget the call. And I, 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 maybe I'll go back and find it. Um, but Kevon Maybon was a wide receiver, caught a bubble screen, and I thought it was like a 15-yard gain. And I, because I mean, he caught it so far back the line of scrimmage, but I couldn't tell. So he's picking up yardage. Kevon, he's got five, he's got ten. First down, Cardinals. And before the next play, I went, winning at the line of scrimmage. It's second and 13. He <laughs> lost three yards. I had, it was unbelievable. I had no idea where the ball was. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a challenge. It's, it's a hard, you know, either that, either you're either 
in a terrible spot inside the 20 yard line or some places you're like 20 stories high, which is actually better than being behind it. But sometimes you're so high that you, you, you know, particularly when you get to be my age, when your eyesight isn't quite as good as it used to be, um, you're so darn high, you, sometimes you can't even see the numbers. And, and then the crazy uniforms- Looking at you, guys, Akron. That the guys <laughs> wear now where the numbers are, you know, there used to be all the numbers had to be like a standard height, uh, bold and all that stuff. Well now, you know, like one year the Saints wore white road jerseys with yellow with gold numbers like well, what are you kidding yeah. me akron has the white jerseys with the silver numbers right yeah and they're in italics yeah. we were just talking about this the night we recorded this we we're talking about eastern michigan my first game i did on the gray field they rolled out in gray helmets gray jerseys and gray pants i'm like what are you kidding me and white numbers probably and white numbers like what are you kidding me so that's part of the challenge as a play-by-play guy too you can be ready to go and walk into the stadium and they roll out in uniforms you never saw them in before with like stylized crinkled up numbers like what are you kidding me central michigan their throwbacks have no numbers on the front that was a good one i forgot about that a couple years ago yeah that was you know it's so now you're you know now you're uh now you're looking like you know and and then this this is a challenge for me like you get a lot of and thankfully guys don't wear them as much anymore but you get like a bunch of receivers that all wear 80s numbers one's 83 one's 88 one's 85 you can't tell the numbers get crimped you know so now you're looking for well one guy has low socks one guy has high socks one guy has arm pads one guy doesn't like those are the things you learn over the years you're like i'm not going to be able to rely on seeing the guy's number but i'm going to know if it's the guy with the low socks then it's joe smith he's number 83 well paul we are uh we're approaching football season here we're at media day as we record this or the night before media day uh so we're getting to that time uh if people want to follow you and the buffalo bulls uh where do they track down uh, your calls or you on social media or i know you do your uh game week kind of polls prep nuggets my bull session right my aptly titled bull session uh ubbulls.com is the school website a lot of the stuff is on there a lot of the video a lot of the calls uh part of the coaches shows and all that stuff um my twitter feed is at peck on sports i try to get as much stuff out there as i can there and then as i mentioned we do a lot of stuff on the website which is buffalosportspage.com so if you're a bills fan sabers fan ub fan um gonna be i think gonna be a lot of new people that are gonna see what UB is Buffalo is doing this year with some really talented players and might be one of the nice surprise stories in college football this year. At least a lot of us are hoping. Um, I think they're, they're going to get some eyebrows and uh, anybody that remembers the seven overtime game last year is one of the most amazing. By the way, not to add, let me, because we, we're going really long here. No, but that's good. Let me go back. Seven yeah. overtime game was one of the most amazing things they've ever been a part of um, because there's no timeouts in overtime. So we were on the air for an hour and five minutes straight without Stop a break. Stop it. Well, there's no timeouts. Seven overtime game. So I ran out of water. I usually have like three bottles of water or whatever. You know, you grab an extra bottle, half, rent water, done, gone. iPad that has the stats on it, died. Like the game was five and a half hours long. Um, like stuff that never happens, happened. Um, and it was the most amazing, incredible experience that I've ever been a part of. And what it taught me was, is you better be prepared for everything. Do you think anybody walked into that stadium that day, including me or Doug Sherman, another Syracuse guy who did the game on ESPN, think we were ready for a seven overtime game? But you better be ready for it because you never know what's going to happen. You better be prepared and you better do a, you better rise to the occasion of the game, which as weird as it sounds in a game that Buffalo lost, will go down as one of the great games in school history. In college football history. Um, how much are you scrambling as that game is going? 
you know, Wolfie, like you're, Brian Wolf, your SID at, at Buffalo, um, like I need to know, like, what's the NCAA record for most passing yards? What's the NCAA record for touchdowns? What's the longest game ever? How much of that are you doing and how much of a multitasker are you? Particularly if you don't have breaks, there's no time for no. you to stop and collect those thoughts. I've got a great crew, and they were all on it. Like, you know, one of our, our, our pregame and postgame and halftime hosts, the minute it got to the seventh overtime, he knew and hopped on and said, this is now tied for the longest game in NCAA history. Uh, my spotter, you know, when we knew that the quarterback was over 500 yards passing, you know, he's already grabbing the school record book and pointing to me, where where it stands on the record book so um it's too hard for me to do it you know particularly when there are no breaks you know you can scribble a note or whatever um you know or sometimes you're at that point where you're like geez i wonder how close he is to the school record in <laughs> passing yards which is a subtle coded hint like somebody looked that up for me you know because i don't have time to look it up myself um, or, you, or you just outright say it like brian if you're listening can you please look this yeah. up for us yeah. so and but when, but when you have a good relationship with your athletic communications people and the crew that you're on they're on the same wavelength as you they already know they, it's not a matter of knowing what you want it's knowing this is important we need to get this out there you know so and and, and that's what's easier about our jobs today is the stat monitors are great you know you can look to stuff up immediately it updates after every play uh you, you know it, it, two clicks and and you can find all this stuff so um I, i'm lucky to have an awesome group of guys to work with that beat me to the punch because again you're when you're in a game like that, you're just trying to, okay, what's next? All right, if they get a two-point conversion here, they win. If they don't, we're going to another overtime. And, you know, particularly in a non-traditional college football market like Buffalo, my, I felt like my job was to continue to explain to people what all of it meant. Okay, we're, we're into the third overtime, which means no more extra points. Now they have to go for two. So it was a constant, like, reinforcing, okay, if, if Buffalo scores here, we're tied. If they don't, they lose. If they do, they win. And, and it was, it was kind of keeping up on all that kind of stuff. Did you know it was Donnie Ernsberger's sister when she ran on the no, field? No, did, I did not. Um, I think, you know, you're, you're kind of looking down to get yourself and you look up and you go, well, it's, what's going on over there? And and you just saw a fan in a jersey. And I think one of the guys noticed the TV feed. And I think maybe our color guy sort of mentioned it like, oh, that person has an Ernsberger jersey on. You know, we didn't know it was her sister. You didn't have a Kevin Harlan. She's obviously drunk. She's at the 30. <laughs> you know? She's at the 40. You know, so, I mean, it just there's so you know what it's like. There's so much going on. You're just trying to stay in control of what what's happening on the field. You know, you're not worried about what the social media moment is going to be. You worry about that later. Well, Paul, um, good night. <laughs> it's late. Uh, thanks for doing this. Man. Uh, always a pleasure. It's good to it's good to talk Syracuse. It's good to talk play by play. I have a passion for it. I I love it like a lot of us love it, um, we, we, you know, and and we're students of it and we're trying to get better and trying to make other everybody else better. And uh, we challenge ourselves 12 times a year, if not more than that. And uh, that's what's fun about this. Here's to 14. I'll see you back here in Detroit. You got it. That is Paul Peck joining us here on Play by Playcast. Uh, many thanks to him for sitting down and doing that. As we recorded it, it was like midnight. I think we, by the time we finished talking there, it was like 1.30 in the morning uh, when everything was all said and done. That was recorded at Football Media Day for the Mid-American Conference the night before. So we're sitting in the hotel in Detroit, Michigan, uh, and you could obviously tell and you could hear uh, the surrounding noise and, and such, but that was after the commissioner's reception so they do a little kind of cocktail party or so for all the people uh, in administration from all the schools. 
um, and the football coaches, etc. And uh, that got finished. I don't know. We walked out of there maybe 10, 30, 11, and then we sat down and uh, knocked out the podcast at uh, for this pod, uh, that is a, a record for latest recording of an episode, I want to say, for sure, in podcast history. So uh, thanks to Paul Peck for staying awake with us and, uh, and knocking that one out this week. Uh, until next week, we say so long. Tim Haggerty will be our guest. He's the voice of the El Paso Chihuahuas. They're the AAA affiliate of the San Diego Padres. Tim Haggerty is our guest next week. Until then, see you. See you.